Lord, for you, all things are possible. So we ask that we might have ears to hear your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the joys of my work is meeting folks who have asked me to officiate their weddings at the chapel. I delight in learning their stories and having important conversations with them related to their lives together. I have a basic pattern of meetings with the couples that is intended to plant some seeds for future conversations for them. The conversations that they'll have either when they leave in the car that day or down the road after they've been married for a while. The first of these meetings is usually focused on their individual stories and learning how they've moved from I to we, from me to us, and how they have now come to this plan for marriage. In a second meeting, we talk through the ceremony, and in great detail, we go line by line through the vows that they are going to be making to each other. It's such a beautiful time hearing the couple's thoughts on what they will mean when they are saying those vows here right in front of this altar. They are deep and significant promises that they'll be making before God and to one another, so it's vital that they think about them. The conversation about the vows is always so thoughtful and so intimate. So it's by the third and final meeting that I have with the couple that I know them well enough and have talked with them about deep enough subjects that I feel prepared to have a final pre-marriage conversation. It's then, and only then, that I talk with them about marital fidelity and finances. You see, I know that talking about such things as emotional and physical intimacy and money are at best saved for after I've gotten to know the couple a little. I'm wise enough to know that talking too early to them about their money and what they will do with it is a sure way for them to want to find a different minister to preside for their wedding. But Jesus has a different kind of wisdom than me. He so often cuts straight to the heart of the matter without any of the delays that I assume are necessary for these types of conversation. So when a man eager to learn from Jesus ran up to him and asked him how to inherit eternal life, Jesus didn't pause to hear the man's life story or to get to know him just a little better before having a very pointed conversation about wealth. I don't want to be critical here, but really, Jesus? You've known this man for only a couple of minutes at best, and you're already telling him what to do with his money? It seems a little presumptuous, possibly. But Jesus recognized something that I never would have. He knew that he was dealing with matters of life and death, so Jesus looked at the man and loved him. And because he loved him, he spoke to him about his possessions. Perhaps we think what Jesus called the man to do was anything but loving. Sell all you own and give it to the poor. 
Yet this is the only person in all of Mark's gospel who we are told that Jesus looked on with love. Jesus loved this man enough to create a crisis of decision, to intervene in the man's life where others would have not been so bold to tread. Jesus loved this man enough to invite him to be free of what possessed him so that he could experience eternal life. Mark tells us that Jesus was walking on the way when this man ran up to him and fell to his knees. In this posture, the man honored Jesus' authority as a teacher and demonstrated the sincerity of his seeking to be a student. The man approached Jesus as one ready to receive an education about eternal life. Good teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus quickly corrected the man and took a moment to redirect the man's attention to the one who alone is good, that is, to God. After reminding this devout man of the God who alone is to be worshipped and adored, Jesus then reminded the man of the commandments related to relationships with people. You shall not murder, commit adultery, steal, lie, or defraud, and honor your father and mother. The Ten Commandments summed up by reminding the man of God alone and the other six. The pious man responded, I've kept all of these since my youth. And the only thing we can do from the context of the story is believe him. Jesus doesn't scoff at the man or look dismissively at him or even have pity on him for thinking that he's done the impossible, kept all the commandments. The story doesn't tell us any of that. We only know that Jesus looked on him with love and then called him to a life that would cost him everything. Go, sell what you own, give to the poor, then come follow me. Jesus' words shocked the man. He walked away grieving. He was filled with the kind of grief that comes when you realize you can't live up to what's being asked of you. It's the kind of deep-seated sorrow that comes when you realize you've lost everything you held dear. It's the kind of grief that fills you when you've let yourself and the ones you love the most down. It's that soul-shaking sorrow the disciples felt when Jesus told them that one of them would betray him. This man, grieved to the core, walked away sad because, as the scripture tells us, he had many possessions. How terrible of a thing it must be to realize that you desire your stuff more than you desire eternal life. This man was seeking the life that lasts forever. But what he was invited to was the way that leads to life. But he walked away. I wonder what about Jesus' calling made that man walk away grieving. 
As you can imagine, much like our time, money and possessions carried great political and social significance. Wealth not only protected people from the precarious conditions of everyday life, providing for things like food and shelter, it also afforded the opportunity for the security of social and political status and power. In many ways, having possessions seemed like a way to ensure life and protect you from death. And being without possessions was a way to ensure death. In a world dominated by firsts and lasts, winners and losers, a social Darwinism type of survival of the fittest, being without possessions surely seems like the way of eternal death rather than the way of eternal life. Eliminating the social, political, and material life that seemed to be created by possessions must have felt like a certain death for that man. So much of his identity, so much of our identity, gets wrapped up in our possessions, our wealth, and the political and social opportunities that are connected to them. This is surely some of what Mark meant in chapter 4 when he says, the lure of riches will choke some of the seed of God's planted word. What's more than selling his possessions, Jesus told the man to give what he received to the poor. Jesus told him to redistribute his wealth among those on the outside of the realms of political and social power. Instead of hobnobbing with the elite, he was to join the ranks of the socially and materially downtrodden. Solidarity with those who sleep in the streets, with those held in poverty's prison, is a sure way to join the lasts at being last. You can almost hear the man thinking, I was asking for life that lasts, not life with the lasts. Yet Jesus called the man to sell this supposed eternal life of social and political status and power and instead have the treasures of heaven among those who've been deprived. Perhaps when counting this cost, that felt a lot more like death than life to the man. And so he was deeply grieved. In response to the man walking away, Jesus said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples, maybe like we disciples, were not so keen to say, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. But instead were baffled and befuddled by Jesus' word. So he tried again by a different way, as if talking to kids using an analogy. You can almost see him holding up a needle as he presents an object lesson. Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Can't you hear the disciples stumbling on these words just a bit? They're astonished. They're taken aback by what Jesus has said. 
I can see them shaking their heads in disbelief. The truth is, I can feel myself shaking my head right along with them. After all, they believed, and we often still believe, that money and possessions and their corresponding power and status are signs of God's favor and blessing. Wealth and riches are supposed to reveal that God has blessed you, right? You're blessed to be a blessing, we're told. It's why we do things like put hashtag blessed on the bottom of our pictures of our grand vacations we've just gone on or on that new vehicle that we're taking a picture of. And if God's blessed you, if you have favor in God's sight, then you must be on the path of everlasting life, right? Surely, you are the one who's being made well. You are the one who's being healed. Surely, we are the ones being saved. But Jesus turned this notion on its head. And disciples then and now struggle to comprehend it. Of course, as we would do, Jesus' followers throughout the years have tried to round off the edges of this challenging word. We've inserted words in the scripture passage to make the issue of, make it an issue of trusting in wealth rather than trusting in God. So perhaps you're familiar with the King James version of verse 24 that says, How hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God? Instead of what's in the Greek, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. More clever than this, I'll have to admit, is the person who in the ninth century made up that story about the gate being an eye of a needle. You've probably heard it before, right? Oh, what, what the true story is, there was this gate that they called the eye of the needle. And camels, they just had to bow really low. And if they got low enough, then they could make it through. This point really just being that wealthy people just need to be humble in our wealth in order to participate in the kingdom of God. Let me tell you, I like that message a whole lot better than I like the one that I think Jesus is preaching. And my favorite, probably my go-to on this passage, is how we can always imagine, how I can always imagine that I am never the rich man. Because there's always someone richer that I can point to who Jesus really must have been talking to. No matter what ways we try to get around Jesus' teaching, and we've tried a lot more than these I've named, it confronts us with the reality of the calling of God's kingdom way. So with the honesty of the wealthy man, we probably have considered walking away or with the same exasperation and desperation of Jesus' first followers, we say, then who can be made well? Who can be healed? Who can be saved? Jesus loved the man enough to invite him into the way of eternal life, even when entering the way required him to let go of everything, to hold back nothing. Like so many others throughout the Gospels, but in the particular way that this man receives it, Jesus invited this would-be follower to give everything 
until he found his identity, his value, his life in Christ alone. Jesus loves us would-be followers too much to not invite us into the way of eternal life too. On this way of eternal life, the designations of first and last, insider and outsider, wealthy and poor, lose their power because of this way, because on this way, instead of being competitors with one another, we become companions of one another. On this way, we are welcomed into a new kind of com community of compassionate companionship. Let me say that again. On this way of eternal life, the designations of first and last, insider and outsider, wealthy and poor, lose their power because on this way, instead of being competitors with one another, we become companions with one another. The way of eternal life is rich and poor sharing together, mutually bound in the kinship of God's family. It's the first and last switching places because the labels are lost in the life everlasting. It's giving up family and friends and social connections to follow Jesus only to receive a community a hundredfold more expansive. Jesus looks on us with love. And Jesus loves us too much to offer anything less than full life in him. So he invites you and me, all of us, to give everything we have until we find our identity, our value, our whole life in Christ alone. This invitation is to a whole-scale change of heart and mind. It's a total reshaping of how we see the world until we see as Christ sees and live as Christ lives. It's a call to repentance. Jesus said it this way early in Mark's gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. So with the disciples, we ask, then who can be saved? Who can be made well? Who can be healed? And Jesus looks at us. And with the same love and compassion he had for the man who once walked away, he says, for mortals, it's impossible. But not for God. For God, all things are possible. While the calling of Christ demands that we surrender all, it's by God's goodness and grace alone that saying yes to that calling is even possible. For mortals, it's impossible, but not for God. With God, we just might be able to say yes. When Jesus says to let go of all that we hold dear, even what we think gives us life, 
by God's very presence and action in our life. That is to say, by God's grace, we may say yes. Who knows? God just might ask you to give it all away. Or God might ask us to leave everything that we've known and loved and found our purpose and meaning and status and worth in. And if he does, perhaps by God's grace, we might just say, yes. And in our spirit-enabled yes, we will experience the fullness of life at last. Let us pray. O to grace, how great a debtor. Daily we're constrained to be. Let your goodness like a feather, fetter, bind our wandering hearts to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave you, God, we love. Here's our heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Amen.